Hi everyone, it's James and welcome back to another episode of Crosswires, the tech podcast where we try and look at all sorts of technology from an ethical and uh, more sort of uh, interesting point of view. And today you've actually heard my guest mentioned on previous episodes and has been accused maybe unfairly of war crimes against Amigas. I brought him here today, you know, we, we believe in equal opportunities on this podcast. Everyone's... <laughs> Sorry, we've got a video chat going through Squadcast. I can see Reese sort of just sat there smirking, so just rolling my eyes. Please welcome Reese from Control Alt Reese. Hello, hello, James. Thank you very much for having me on to uh, defend the ST's honour. Indeed, you know this all stems from um, just so people aware. It, it stems from an RMC live video where Reese nearly took a table saw to an Amiga six hundred, which was painful to watch. Yeah, I mean, I like to think that it's all good natured, you know. It's uh, we're, we're all friends, really, aren't we? So yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, perhaps, perhaps a slight trick of the camera. I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think it was quite that close, but uh, you know. I was going to say, how close did it actually get? Well, you know, it's it, it's it's Hollywood magic, isn't it? You know, there's there's camera angles, <laughs> and uh, I, I can neither confirm uh, nor deny any harm occurring to any Amigas on my uh, on my channel. So. But uh, no, it's it's all it's all in good fun, isn't it? So absolutely, no, absolutely. I I've poked my own share of fun. I think I've <laughs> I've blown up the Amiga section in SimCity, uh, Amiga section, Atari section in SimCity 2000. Oh. Anyway, as you said, it's all good fun, and obviously we've spoken many times uh, in DMs on the RMC Retro Discord server, and really glad to have you here. And I thought before we kind of talk about the Atari and get a little bit into the ST. Why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself, how you got started, what you actually do, and uh, where this Atari obsession come, came from? Because it's, it's a very strange obsession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can uh, entirely blame my my family for that. So, yeah, um, I suppose I could start start from the top, really, with the, the whole Atari thing. So, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, we used to do the, the big family Christmas thing. Um, you know, the whole kind of extended family would descend upon an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent's house every Christmas uh, for Christmas Day. And... Um, it was one uh, one ill-fated year. Um, I think it was probably around 1988, 89. I would have been four or five. Uh, and we were at my uncle's house. And my cousin had just got an Atari 2600 Junior. So not the uh, not the wood grain model, but the, the later, the smaller plastic one. And uh, obviously, we spent the whole time uh, locked in his bedroom for the, the whole of Christmas Day playing on this, this Atari 2600. And um, to me, at that kind of age, and, and to be able to interact with something on the TV and to kind of move the joystick around and, and have something moving uh, on the TV screen was, was quite a revelation. And I know it's something that we take for granted nowadays with, with computers and, and games consoles and stuff. But, um, you know, obviously I thought it was the best thing ever. So, uh, yeah, from that point onwards, I, I begged my parents and, you know, I, I must have been incredibly annoying. I mean, I was quite an annoying kid anyway, but, um, yeah, you know, it was, I want an Atari, I want an Atari. And, um, you would think that they, they would finally snap and give in, but, um, Actually, there, there, there was a bit of a, a stepping stone in the form of the Acorn Electron, which I think was was already kind of outdated by that point. I'm not quite sure where my dad actually got it from. Um, I don't know if he bought it out of the back of the paper or, or got it from a co-worker or something like that. But um, uh, yeah, my parents were kind of very big believers in uh, computers over games consoles and uh, you know wanted something I could do my homework on and didn't want to stretch to a brand new computer. So uh, yeah, this, this Acorn Electron appeared. Um, played with that for a couple of months and then it exploded. So uh, literally plugged it in, hit the switch, huge bang, smoke pouring out of the thing. Obviously now in, in hindsight, knowing what I know now, um, I guess it was a, probably a reefer capacitor in the in the power supply. But um, 
at the time it was pretty catastrophic and obviously my mum was terrified it was going to burn the house down and my, you know my dad was running out into the garden with it and uh, all of this kind of stuff <laughs> and it was that christmas that uh, they got me the atari the atari ste so i don't really know what i like to think that me begging them for an atari specifically maybe had some kind of uh, influence on that but uh, I, I don't actually know how the conversation went and, and how they kind of went with the ste over over the amiga or, or anything else that was kind of available at the time but yeah, that, that, that's pretty much what set me up for this uh, this lifetime obsession. I've always been into um, like making silly little videos and that kind of stuff. Um, when I was a kid, my parents had a, had a, a camcorder, and I used to make like magic videos and all, all this ca- kind of crazy stuff, filming my sister and her friends dancing around and and all all, all kinds of uh, random stuff. And then through college, I, ha- I had camcorders and uh, you know these little SD card cheapo camcorder things. And so the the, the two uh, the two hobbies were bound to combine at some point obviously uh, you know watching people like 8-bit guy and, and lgr and kind of those early uh, tech youtube channels and thinking oh, i could do that you know I, i'm interested in old computers and i'm interested in uh, you know making videos and yeah evidently uh, at some point i decided it, it would be an, a good idea to start a, uh, a retro tech youtube channel so yeah i kind of uh, first started on instagram um just posting pictures of stuff and, and then that got quite a big following and, and then i thought no i'll, I'll take the opportunity and I'll, I'll i'll make the jump and i'll go for it uh that was around november 2019 i uploaded my first video uh there's a whole interesting story behind that if you want to hear it <laughs> yeah by all means yeah so uh I'd, I'd, I'd been posting quite a lot of um i'd been modifying consoles doing um you know video mods on them and stuff like yeah. that and, and posting pictures of that on instagram and uh, jason bradbury of all people contacted me and you know, the guy from the gadget show mm-hmm. and uh, he said oh you know i want a famicom that i can use in my uh, uh, social media posts and stuff so the family the famicom is the uh, nintendo family computer basically the original japanese version of the nes mm-hmm. um he said oh you know you know could you get your hands on one and modify it for me and i want to use it in some of my social media posts and stuff and uh, I acquired one and, and modified it and sent it over to him. And he said, oh, can you do me Atari, an Atari 2600? So I did the Atari 2600. Um, and it was at that point I thought I should probably probably record this process just in case I want to make it into a video. Mm. And uh, recorded some clips of me doing the modification and, and kind of talking through it and, and, and how it all worked and that kind of thing. And, and that became the very first video on my channel. So, yeah, it started, started big, name-dropping uh, Jason Bradbury. Um, I think... All of about ten people watched that video, but um, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, and then, then kind of uh, got in with the whole RMC crowd. A lovely bunch of people, very supportive. Um, they obviously seem to enjoy what I'm doing, and um, yeah, it's it's kind of gone from strength to strength, really. So still enjoying it, still sticking at it. I know a lot of people have kind of started, uh, you know, projects during lockdown and stuff. That uh, now now they're kind of free to leave the house and, and uh, get on with their lives that have kind of take, you know, been put on the back burner. Um, but I'm still committed. I'm still, uh, I'm still very much on it. So no. And I, you know, obviously I've watched a fair, a fair number of videos and they are fantastic. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I have to say that really. No, <laughs> a very, very interesting start though. And I guess that actually leads me on to a nice question. So obviously you talk about video modding these old consoles. Hmm. Now for maybe our younger listeners, these old consoles, a lot of them, they didn't have, you forget HDMI, a lot of them didn't even have Composite or S-Video or SCART. They had good old-fashioned RF. Um, in fact, I think, 
I think I remember the NES, the, uh, the one at least we got here, had composite out. Yes, it but did. But I'm guessing some of the earlier Atari's, right, the 2600, probably didn't. They were probably RF. Yeah, so, I mean, Atari, obviously the original 2600 um, that launched back in 1977. Uh, no such thing as, certainly no such, such thing as HDMI, but, uh, yeah, no composite or uh, or anything. So that was very much a, an RF job. All the way through to even the the fifty two hundred, the seventy eight hundred, um, even they were RF as well. Like say the the Nintendo had um, composite. The original Japanese version, the Famicom didn't. So obviously, getting these things hooked up to uh, some kind of TV that doesn't have a tuner, some kind of display like a, a PVM type CRT, you know, a professional um, broadcast CRT or something like that, or getting it hooked up to an upscaler for uh, a modern. HDMI TV mm. or um, uh, for sort of capture for streaming and that kind of stuff, you need to modify them. Uh, basically involves tapping into the uh, the video the video circuitry internally, um, amplifying that signal and uh, kind of outputting it in such a way that makes sense for those other devices to be able to display. And depending on the console, sometimes it's uh, relatively straightforward and sometimes it involves uh, replacing quite a chunk of the actual guts of the console. So... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, great place to get started with uh, kind of electronics and that kind of stuff because obviously there's a lot of really good guides out there and a lot of uh, kits and things like that. You know, as, as long as you you can pick up a soldering iron and uh, vaguely wave it in the right direction, it's uh, they, they're quite fun things to put together. And of course, you know, even if you were just wanting to connect one of these to your modern TV, well, any TV sold what in probably in the last five, I'd say at least five years, it will possibly ha- it will have a RF input, but it won't have an analog tuner. Because, of course, here in the UK, we've gone entirely to digital, mm. so you won't have any way to tune that analog signal. So you'll need something, even if it's just composite, okay, your standard TV is not going to do a great job of upscaling composite video. Um, mm. But, hey, you know, you can find, if you find some CRTs or, you know, good old-fashioned, like, bedroom tellies. I remember having this uh, very old thing that we used with the Amiga. It was... I, it was something we got from my nana's sister. Mm. <laughs> and it, yeah, and that's how old it was. And, you know, we were doing it through RF. So I never had the best experience with my Amiga. We never had an actual monitor uh, for the Amiga. I, th- I think, to be fair, I mean, obviously, that's how most of us experienced these things mm. back in the day. I mean, I, I had a, a small, you know, a portable TV in my bedroom when I was a kid. And, and yeah, that's how I used the the ST and the the Acorn Electron as well. So I know I know in our minds it's all uh, crystal clear and, and kind of up to modern standards. But uh, I think back in the day it was it was very very fuzzy and uh, a lot of it was kind of imagination filling in the gaps. So even uh, even composites are, are a big step up from that. Yeah, I mean to be fair, in my case I just couldn't tell the difference because my eyesight's not bad anyway. <laughs> so I was fine, you know, it was all good to me. Anyway, let's let's talk some Atari because. You mentioned the the STE. Now, this wasn't Atari's first home computer. uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, they had the 400, the 600, and the 800? Yeah, so the first two that launched were the 400 and the 800 uh, back in 1979. I actually have. Oh, ta-da. Not that this is on video, but I do have an 800 here. Um, So, yeah, um, probably my favourite machines, actually, of the, the entire Atari range over the years, because um, I think the Atari 8-bit computers had, uh, certainly certainly early on, they had the best uh, arcade conversions and, and some of the best 
games on them and they, they were really really capable machines compared to stuff like the commodore 64 and the, and the spectrum and, and other stuff that was around at the time quite expensive sort of higher end machines when they first launched but um i mean like the 800's got a really nice uh, mechanical keyboard on it and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a really sort of big solid thing so yeah that they were kind of the first two computers that they launched um there was the st obviously in 1985 uh, they carried on with the 8-bit range all the way up until until the early 90s. So there was the uh, the XL, uh, like you say, there was the 600, the uh, the XE range, 65 and the 130 XE. So yeah, I, I'm kind of known as as an Atari ST guy because that's the the computer that I had back in the day, and that's the one that I have on my desk. But actually, being entirely honest, that I think the 8 bits probably, like I say, probably uh, probably my favourite of the entire range. So, and that's before you even get into the uh, the consoles and the the pong machines and everything else. So, yeah, a long and illustrious history uh, with Atari, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and Atari, you know, not take into account what they're up to these days, but let's say about the current NFT antics were better. Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> we go back, you know, they had so much, and I think. You talk about them, uh, the 800 and 400 being expensive machines. I think that was quite common uh, in the higher end, and particularly because a lot of these machines were aimed at the American market, where the American mm. market had, not to put too fine a point, they had more disposable income for these sort of things than, than us Brits did. We, you know, we had to put up with our speckies and our, you know, cheap, cheaper machines. Interesting. Of course, you know, as I said, the, the Amiga took off massively here. And I know VST uh, did as well. I, I remember having a friend. In childhood, who had an ST? I can't. I'm afraid, can't remember what model it was. But as you said, you're known for being an ST guy. Now, what would you say is the def- was the defining model of the ST? Because I always get a little bit confused between the ST, the STE, the STFM. I remember, is it the five twenties, the ten forty? Yeah, help help me out here, is <laughs> right. You want a complete? Uh- Unabridged oh. history of the ST, do you? Because I, I can do that. I mean, yeah, I mean how, uh, how long have you got? <laughs> um, yeah, let, let's let's keep it to the uh, to the cliff notes, to the highlights. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, there was the original, uh, the the two sixty and the five twenty ST uh, back in nineteen eighty five. I have done a video on the two sixty ST mm-hmm. on my channel. Um, bit of a, 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 a shameless plug there. Contrary to popular belief, the 260 ST wasn't a 256K machine. Um, that was a 500, 512K machine, just like the 520. Um, and then they, they integrated the floppy drive and the RF modulator in, into the machine internally, which was the STFM, uh, with the F standing for floppy and the M standing for modulator. Mm-hmm. This is where uh, we have to start to think about timescales and, and the launch of, of the Amiga and all of that kind of stuff. I know okay. uh, we don't... Uh, we don't mention the A word on my channel, or not, not, not that not that A word. Um, but um, of course, the original ST, uh, like I say, launched in '85, and then um, I think it was uh, the Amiga 1000 came the year after that in '86. I think sounds about right. Um, yeah, I, I've been researching this for for an upcoming video, so hopefully, I get my dates and things right. Uh, and then I think the 500 was the year after that, which was obviously the 500 was the most popular machine that kind of mm. most people had back in the day. And yeah, I mean, uh, it would be dishonest of me to say that uh, you know the ST and the Amiga were were equal at that point. But of course, uh, Commodore had had a, a couple of years, you know, to work on stuff. So that, that's kind of Atari's disadvantage, being the uh, being the first mover in that market. But I think the, the, 
the kind of the trick that I think a lot of people miss is that obviously the STE was released in 1988, and that was the machine that I had back in the day, and that had the hardware scrolling, and it had the extended palette, and it had the blitter, and you know the proper DSP audio chip, and it was basically on par with the with the Amiga 500. Mm. Um, and Atari kind of massively cut the price of the STFM, um, which was which was the original ST. I can see you. I can see you thinking here, trying to. <laughs> Keep up with this uh, convoluted timeline that I'm yeah. that I'm spinning, um, and uh, yeah, of course. So, in my mind, um, obviously the STE was kind of the, the direct competitor to the Amiga 500, um, and Atari kind of continued to sell the STFM as the budget machine. Right. I think, I think the STFM is really important because it was a budget machine. You know, it was it was about 150 quid cheaper than the STE and the Amiga 500, uh, which mm. were both quite expensive machines when they first launched. Oh yeah. And it kind of served the same purpose as the the Spectrum had done a few years before, and and kind of it was an entry point for a lot of people to get into the the sort of sixteen bit era and and you know get get on board with a proper uh, computer with a graphical user interface and everything else that uh, perhaps couldn't have otherwise got into it, couldn't have otherwise afforded it. So this is this is why uh, I. Uh, Sometimes I uh, get a bit uh, frustrated with the whole ST and Amiga debate because it's there's a lot to it. It's quite complicated. And obviously, on, on the Amiga side as well. Obviously, there was the, the 1000 at first, which was a really amazing, really sort of groundbreaking machine. Um, you know, really big in kind of the, the video production world and that kind of stuff. Um, and then obviously there was the 500, and then the 600. The 600 really uh, forward looking with the uh, the PCMCIA slot and mm. the internal IDE interface and all that kind of stuff. So I'm certainly not a fanboy. Um, I do know my history, um, and I am working on uh, researching it all and, and getting it all straight in my mind. But um, yeah, I suppose I suppose that's why I'm here today, isn't it? To uh, to yeah. put my case forward. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you know the one thing I really? It was something that always made me sort of curious about the ST line was those amazingly slanted function keys. I don't know what it was about them. It's just a bit different. It felt modern. Yeah, I mean, perhaps I'm biased, but I think out of the two, um, I do prefer the look of the ST. I think it was very uh, sort of futuristic when it came Mm. out. I know Atari had quite a famous, and I can't remember the name of the guy, but had quite a famous um, industrial designer working for them at the time who was known for sort of furniture and architecture and that kind of stuff. Um, also designed like the XL line and that, and that kind of stuff as well. So um, it certainly comes off. It's certainly and even just little things like on on again the ST and the the floppy drive doesn't it? It looks just a little bit different. But the opening for a floppy compared with the Amiga or say a PC at the time. Well, I mean, I guess at the time most PCs were on five and a quarter inch mm. uh, floppies. But yeah, there's something about the ST, and of course, the one big advantage. Or out of the box, but the now correct me if I'm wrong. Was this an STE feature, or was this just an ST um, line feature? MIDI ports. Yeah, so the, the very first machines, all the way back in 1985, had the MIDI ports. I think that, that's kind of the other thing that's uh, kind of important to consider um, when you look at the history of the ST is that it was really intended as a competitor to the, to the uh, Apple Mac. Mm. Um, so. Obviously, it launched, um, the Mac was kind of gaining ground in music production and that kind of stuff. So they said, well, you know, this thing has to have MIDI ports so we can compete on that front. And um, it, the ST was launched with a, a high-resolution monochrome mode and a really, really, uh, really sharp, really excellent quality um, high-resolution monochrome monitor as well. Um, and then things like modems and laser printers and all that kind of stuff. So 
uh, with the original ST, um, and obviously going on into the STFM as well, um, it, it was really designed as a, a kind of, you know, a, a business machine and as mm. a kind of, yeah, you, you know, music production and, and kind of serious work. And, and, and the gaming aspect of it was, was kind of a secondary consideration. Um, obviously, Atari being Atari, um, gaming was always going to be uh, something that they had to had to provide for and something that they had to address. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, the, obviously uh, it was known as the uh, as the Jackintosh back in the day um, <laughs> after Jack Trammell, the uh, the CEO of Atari. So, yeah, obviously the once the Amiga launched, obviously mentioning the Amiga again, but uh, you're an Amiga guy, I know that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you, fe- are you feeling okay, Barry? So you're doing I'm all okay. right? Same. Yeah, you're all right? I'm doing all right. Uh yeah, obviously the Amiga launched, and, and that was a, a much more gaming-focused machine. And then, uh, like I say, Atari kind of had to uh, play catch up a little, a little bit with the STE and, and kind of address that side of things as well. But um, yeah, because of that kind of business focus and the availability of um, you know the, that kind of business-focused accessories like laser laser printers and modems and all that kind of stuff, the ST was really big in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe as a as a business machine. Oh, and um, uh, like Germany and Scandinavia and. I get a lot of comments on my ST videos um, from people in that that part of the world saying, you know, I, I remember using one of these at work back in the day. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, we had them as kids in a, in our bedroom as a gaming machine and, <laughs> and, and you had an office full of them and, you know, you were doing desktop publishing and word processing on them and stuff. So, yeah, another another kind of aspect that I think gets uh, does get overlooked. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for me, going back to the Amiga thing, the thing that always blew my mind as an Amiga user was that, and admittedly, it was only for the first season, but the VFX for Babylon 5, which is one of my <laughs> favourite sci-fi shows, I don't care what anybody says, it is a wonderful series, were done on the video toaster, which was on the, was an Amiga thing. And it was uh, done using uh, Lightwave 3D, I believe, and, and mm. video toaster, which is incredible. It but is. Also, you know, we think, you know, again, going back to that whole MIDI thing, I know lots of musicians who used Atari STs. Um, I think there's, and I'm going to get, this is a famous musician who still uses um, an ST. Is it Fatboy Slim? It is Fatboy Slim. It is. I'm just yeah. Really, yeah. He did um, a, quite a famous interview a few years ago on YouTube with one of the big, I can't remember who it was now, but it was one of the big sort of audio equipment manufacturers. And he, he did like a home studio tour. And he still had his ST in pride of place, and he was still actually using it to to make music on. And this was in like 2017 or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, like uh, on top of the pops back in the day, you know, you had like Pet Shop Boys on top of the pops with their Atari STs on stage up and running. I guess they were just props. I'm sure they weren't actually playing stuff live. But um, since when were any of the performances on top of a pops yeah. live? Yeah, there's a. Um, I need to find it really. There's there's a video of a. Uh, like a music festival back in the in the early nineties, and and the prodigy are playing. Okay, and there's, a, and there's a guy in the background um, at the back of the stage on an Atari ST, and as they're going through the uh, through the songs and the different parts of the songs, he's frantically swapping floppy disks, and he's got like a, a floppy disk box on a, on a little stand next to the computer. I remember seeing it a couple of years ago, and I, I haven't found it since, but I, I really need to dig that up because it's quite it's quite amusing to watch. So either. He was doing me music, or he was having a few little rounds of Rick Dangerous while he was um, maybe, you know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never know. Anyway, um, so that was yesterday. A great machine. Now, of course, we could talk so much about all the different machines, and 
I think there's probably two I wanted to ask you about because I know you've got some experience with at least one of these. Mm. The falcon. The falcon. Now, yeah. this is not a bird of prey. This is, this was going to be, well, is and was going to be Atari's big next generation, big wipe everything off, the, you know, out next gen machine. Before I do that, though, you mentioned Jack uh, Trammell, and of course, it's probably worth noting <laughs> that Jack Trammell was the founder of Commodore. Indeed. And of course, he went to Atari. Now, did he buy Atari? He got kicked out of Commodore. I think he bought Atari, if I remember correctly. He did. So, yeah, Atari belonged to um, Warner of Mm -hmm. um, Time Warner, Warner Communications fame. Um, They were looking to offload the home computer and home gaming division, and uh, he'd been kicked out of Commodore at uh, exactly the right time and ended up snapping it up. And, of course, the other connection is Jay Miner, who you will know as the father of the Amiga, um, but he actually designed the chipset in the Atari 400 and 800 that we were talking about. Yep. So that, that was kind of where he started. Because the Amiga was nearly an um, Atari machine. Yeah. Yeah, well, obviously they were kind of um, going around to different manufacturers, kind of shopping the concept around, weren't they? And uh, yeah. Atari w- were one of the companies that they visited. And uh, Mr. Tremel, being the uh, ruthless businessman that he was, thought, no, I'm not, I'm not going to pay these guys. I'm just going to rip off their idea and, and make my own version of it. So, <laughs> Sounds <laughs> as, about as it right. very well known for. <laughs> yes. So. Anyway, the Falcon. This, yes. this, we, oh, the stories about this thing, I'll, I'll let you take it away because you know your stuff on this. Yeah, so um, I've got um, one of the videos on my channel and one of the things that, that takes pride of place on my wall is a prototype Falcon motherboard. Um, so it was known as the Sparrow when it was in development. Um, it was the uh, Sparrow was the code name for it, which is uh, obviously far less impressive. Um, but yeah, they, they wanted a uh, you know a, a sixty eight oh three oh machine to compete with stuff like the Next Station and the um, the Amiga twelve hundred, and you know obviously that I think it was becoming obvious that that was kind of going to be the next generation mm. of that that kind of hardware. Um, and the Falcon, yeah, really powerful, really impressive machine. In the end. Um, took off in the music world, um, but unfortunately uh, just came along at that kind of stage in Atari's life cycle when, um, you know, they were, they were having issues with uh, with funding, with cash flow, with developer relations, and uh, I think it was becoming quite obvious that things were starting to unravel. So uh, that, that was, I think it was late 92 that was released. Um, obviously, the Jaguar came along in 93. Um but uh, yeah, it was. I think it was obvious that the writing was on the wall, um, and and anyone out there, kind of in the market for that kind of thing, probably went out and bought the uh, the Amiga twelve hundred or the uh, or a PC mm. instead. And to be fair, I think it was probably quite a wise decision. <laughs> uh, but, Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Still, you know, none, nonetheless, uh, an, an impressive machine and uh, a good one for them to to go out on. Uh, there was the TT 030 which was the other. 68030 based machine that they uh, kind of did it around the same time, which was much more kind of business focused. Yeah, I don't actually own a Falcon. Um, I've had opportunities uh, a long time ago um, when I kind of looked at them and thought, oh no, I'm not paying two or three hundred. Yeah. Not paying two or three hundred quid for that. You know, that's a complete waste of money. There's nothing you can run on it. And obviously now they're selling for ten times that. So yeah. perhaps I should have picked one up when I, when I had the chance. But uh, but as you said, it would really just be a, a paperweight because it was virtually because it. Didn't get that, didn't get a proper launch and didn't get a proper mm. software following. 
you're not going to be a, you're not really going to have much to demo on it, I guess. Unfortunately, no. I mean, it, it, the one thing that it's really good at is uh, just being a really good Atari ST because it was backwards compatible, but. <laughs> That's what an Atari ST is for. Um, yeah, I already own uh, a few of those. I've, I think I've, you know, I've lost count, but um, I don't think I need another one. <laughs> You've certainly got. I mean, you obviously, as I said earlier, I can see Reese. I can see a lot of machines behind him. There's there's quite a collection. It, it's like being in a little um, retro computer warehouse. I've um, I've had that before actually, where I've I've kind of had like. Um, uh, teams meetings and stuff for for work related stuff and accidentally left my camera on and people are like oh where are you you know are you at home <laughs> like, are you at B and Q yeah yeah I think B and Q is one that's specifically been mentioned yeah because of the racking and uh, just the sheer yes. amount of stuff everywhere so you also mentioned the other system that I wanted to talk about because I have vivid memories of this being talked about and demoed on. The wonderful bad influence on ITV. Oh, yes. Uh, rather, CITV. Now, I, I didn't realise, of course, that Andy Crane actually knew nothing about computers. Yeah, that's one of these things that's kind of recently uh, come out of the woodwork, isn't it? That, uh, you know, he was just, just doing his job as a presenter and didn't really care about the actual stuff that he was talking about. But I think he did a good job. He did. And, and him and Violet Berlin, and uh, you had Z, Z, in the first few series, you had Z Wright over in. Um, the States, which was always hilarious, like, oh yeah, we're going to let this kid into the... Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, look, I lo- at the time, I loved Bad Influence and still have fond memories, but when I look back now and watch some of the reviews from the, the kids they got to do reviews, thinking... Oh. And what I didn't realise, of course, is um, it was filmed at um, Yorkshire TV. And okay. at the time, I was living in Leeds, literally probably a couple of miles from the studios. And um, I, I guess I never knew about it or never knew how you'd go and be an audience member. So it was one of those things where, as a kid, you kind of watched it on TV and thought, oh, you know, I, I really want to be in that audience. You know, I, I really want to get in on that. And uh, obviously, back in those days before the internet, it was kind of really difficult to get hold of that information. I think the, the other one was um, Junior Crystal Maze when that was on. I remember. I, I loved yes. Crystal Maze when I was a kid. No, and they had the kids version that I think was like a they did it occasionally as like a Christmas special or something. And I, yeah. I remember being really, really jealous and thinking, oh, you know, I, I want to do that. <laughs> I I just remember that Crystal Maze. I was allowed to stay up to watch Crystal Maze when I was younger. <laughs> so bad influence showed off a Jaguar. I remember the, the ad campaigns. You know, thirty two plus thirty two equals sixty four, and all do this stuff. So, oh, do the, yeah, do the math because, of course, <laughs> I think wasn't because think Nintendo, the Nintendo sixty four wasn't. There was some claim about the Nintendo sixty four not actually being sixty four bit. Oh, there was, I mean, there was so much of it going on at the time. You know, everyone was obsessed with bits, and of course, it's all. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm from a. I mean, I'm a software developer in my day job. But I, I come from a computer science background, mm. um, and and it's just meaningless it's just pointless i mean obviously yeah. there is a there is ultimately a a deep down uh, a deeper technical meaning to it all but um you know that you know you, you get a 64-bit bus and stick a 16-bit cpu on it and you know you, you're only going to get 16-bit levels of performance yeah. but <laughs> you can tell tell everyone that it's a you know 64-bit machine and for marketing purposes and of course the man in the street doesn't know any different but uh yeah obviously the thing about the jag was uh they had the two the two 32-bit chips um, obviously com- communicating over a 64-bit bus, and that was kind of how they decided that it was a 64-bit machine. But, uh, 
you know. Again, it was an impressive console. You, you know, you had games on there like Alien versus was it Alien versus Predator? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and so what what happened? Because this wasn't their first, obviously it was not their first console, but it was it had a lot of problems. Yeah, again, kind of what I what I uh, alluded to before with the the Falcon as well was it was it was just that period in Atari history when they were having all sorts of issues with cash flow and they were screwing over some of their partners and their developers and not paying people properly and yeah, it's uh, dark times. I mean, the thing most people, the Jaguar is one of these things that uh, in in kind of retro gaming circles and things, it's quite fashionable to to hate on it and say, oh, you know, it was a, it was a load of rubbish. But again, speaking as a as an Atari fan um, and trying to trying to desperately defend my corner here and, and put things into their proper historical context, um, the of course the Jaguar was released uh, a year before the N sixty four and the PlayStation. Yeah, and when it was released, it, it was actually you know the most powerful home console on the market at the time. Um, the issue was that they just didn't have the developer support for it. So those those very early games on the system um, just weren't very good. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, for first impressions count. So there were some really interesting titles. And of course they did. Now, did it, I don't know if it got released, the um, Jaguar CD add-on? Yeah, the Jaguar CD. So that came right at the very end of the Jaguar's life. Um, they're really rare and really, uh, really expensive now. Uh, not many games released for that. I think there were 12 CD games released, um, and, and none of them really sort of fully took advantage of the technology. It was just a case of uh, take an existing game and slap a load of FMV and stuff on it to uh, fill the space on the CD. Which, to be fair, is what you could probably say about the majority of a mega CD catalogue as well. Well, true. I suppose that was kind of the, the fashion at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Had <laughs> this new technology and didn't really know what to do with it. Yeah, exactly. And and again, you know, look, I'll say this, the Jaguar was certainly a more impressive console release compared with the CD32. I think the Jaguar probably did better in, in that sense. It was, I mean, to be fair, anything could do better than well, the CD32. It's not saying much, is it? <laughs> no. And although the Jaguar, now, the Jaguar's controller was interesting to say the least, but again, I, I you know, I will be very honest, it was better than the CD32 one. But Again, that's not hard. We were joking in our MC chat about um, someone getting beaten up with CD32 controllers the other day. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Um, so well, the so one thing on. the Jaguar, the one thing the Jaguar controller did have going for it is uh, it had lots of buttons. You never have too many buttons. Um, in fact, I'm sitting here looking at one right now, and it's got a, it's got what, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, sixteen buttons, something like that. Probably more because it had that. like the number. <laughs> it, it felt like um, it felt like someone had mated a game controller and a 1980s TV remote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that was something that uh, Atari first did with the... F- well, I was going to say they first did that with the 5200, but there were the keypad controllers for the 2600 as well. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the 5200 controllers actually had the, like, the telephone keypad style yeah. thing with the plastic overlays that slot over the buttons. And it's a really clever concept, really, when you, uh, you know, when it, when it boils down to it, because it's uh, obviously reconfigurable depending on the game. And yeah, yeah, unfortunately, uh, history has not been kind to the Jaguar. No. So moving on, moving sort of forward to where we are now, the, the question I asked Dan Wood when we talked about the Amiga, and you know, 
briefly we'll ask you, because of course we, we've never talked to Atari models before, but if someone's interested in, say, in picking up a, an original Atari, be it an ST, be it an 800, um, be it the 2600, what would be your advice and what do you make of, because we, because of course we have like modern clones of the 2600, but what, what would be your take on people wanting to get into Atari collecting now? Interesting question. So the 7800 is a bit of a, uh, I hate to use the phrase hidden gem. Um, hardware wise, it's not really that impressive, but as far as collecting is concerned, there's loads of Atari 7800 stuff out there. Um, a lot of it's still boxed, a lot of it's still in very good condition, and it seems to go for next to nothing, which is quite rare in the world of retro collecting at the moment. Um, and it's backwards compatible with the 2600 as well, so if you pick up a 7800 console, uh, you can run all those old 2600 games on it. Uh, and there's some there's some quite good stuff on there. Certainly graphically, it wasn't a bad console. Uh, it's kind of let down a bit on the audio side of things because um, essentially the same audio capabilities as, as the 2600, yeah. um, apart from a few a few games that uh, had a uh, a pokey chip inside them, which was the uh, Atari 8-bit sound chip. Um, so yeah, it, looking to get into collecting and, and kind of looking for the cheaper side of things. Uh, the 7800 is a very good one to look into. Uh, the Atari ST, to be fair, um, you can still pick up STFMs relatively cheap. Um, perhaps not so much on eBay, but um, like Facebook Marketplace yep. and, and Gumtree and, and places like that. And the STFM, I mean, the vast majority of game developers um, developing and releasing games for the ST targeted the STFM because it was the like the lowest common denominator. So it yep. runs. 99% of, of the games that are out there, um, perfectly happily. Um, you know, pick one of those up, um, try and get one with one meg of RAM or upgrade it if, if, if not. Um, and yeah, it, even good, good condition boxed games for the ST aren't, aren't, aren't silly money, uh, just yet. That's good. So two good systems to look into for collecting. Um, as far as the 8-bit computer side of things is concerned, um, the, the later ones like the XE, uh, they're still relatively easy to pick up. Um, issue with those is that particularly in the UK, uh, most of the games that people would have had for them back in the day would have been on cassette and they don't tend to uh, age well, haven't been stored very well and, and that kind of stuff. Um, although there are obviously like, like as with everything nowadays, there are flashcards for them. So, yeah. um, cause of yeah. course with, with the ST, you will, you know, there are just like there's Gotex that you can put into an Amiga, VST has a nice, um, you know, people will flash the Gotex for VST as well. So if you don't want to use the floppies, and as, as, as I reiterated with Dan, it, as long as you own the original games or have legally acquired <laughs> them, I have to put that disclaimer onto everything these days. But yeah, um, you know, you can get those images and, um, use a Gotex, um, which is a, you know, I, I think there's a bit of a, what's the word? A bit of a rose tinted glasses with floppy drive game, uh, floppy drive loading because, you know, we all did it back in the day and floppy swapping. I think I remember getting a second hard drive, uh, hard drive, second floppy drive for my Amiga, mm. thinking, oh, this will help. And then of course realizing that not all developers have made their games external floppy aware. No, and you have exactly the same problem on the ST as well. So yeah, most games won't boot from an external floppy drive. On on the ST, there is a there is a device called an Ultra Satan. Um, so um, I, I've literally just released a video about this. Another shameless plug. <laughs> um, so the, the those ST machines going all the way back to the original 
1985 machines had external hard disk support. And the Ultra Satan is a modern hard disk emulator that plugs into that port. Uh-huh. And there's a member of the Atari community called uh, Patari, or PP, um, his initials. And he's spent about the past 15 years converting games, uh, games that were originally floppy only, so they can run from things like the Ultrasate and, and, and hard disks and stuff. And there's about, there's over a thousand of these game conversions that he's done wow. over the years. So, yeah, nowadays it's just a case of, uh, you know, pick one of those up, download the SD card image with the 1500 games or whatever it is, and, and off you go. It, you know, it all, all just works perfectly and, and flawlessly. So that's probably what I would recommend. Um, obviously, it's, it's a little bit more expense and a bit more outlay than uh, just just uh, using the old original floppies, but uh, probably well worth it if you want to see everything that the the ST has to offer. Certainly, certainly a lot more convenient. Nice, and um, that, that's similar, uh, I'm guessing, to WHD Load on on the Amiga. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I guess sort of wrapping up the what you can do now with Atari's. Um, I know there are calls for the Mister System, and of course, you know we have to give our shameless plug to our friend Neil. I mean, Mr. Multisystem. Um, Mr. Multisystem. I love that. I love that name. It, it just reminds me of um, Mr. Fusion in uh, Back to the Future. Yeah, well, of course, the, going off on a tangent again, The uh, obviously the, the mm. Multisystem name came from the Conix Multisystem, or is it Conix or Conix? I can't remember, but a uh, console that was, yeah. that was famously um, uh, developed by uh, a bunch of, I think they were ex-Sinclair people, um, back in the 80s, and, and it was cancelled and never got launched. And um, those same people developed the... Well, they worked alongside Atari on the Jaguar. So there's a, there's a connection there uh-huh. as well. But, uh, yeah, the other thing I was going to say about, about, about the Mister, um, of course, the actual... You, you do know where the, where the name Mister actually oh, originally yeah, came Amiga from? Oh, yeah, Amiga and ST. Yeah, it started yeah, off yeah. as a project to recreate the, the Amiga and the ST in FPGA, and it's kind of grown from there into this into this amazing thing. Indeed. And I'm assuming, uh, and I, I know this is the case, you can, um, RetroPie is really good. If you don't want to dabble in original hardware, RetroPie does a great job of emulating all those 2600 games. Again, as long as you legally own them. Certainly does. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I mean, as you can probably see um i'm very much into my original hardware and i like having the yeah. hardware like i say I'm, I'm kind of from a, a software engineering and a computer science background so tinkering with the hardware does appeal to me a lot but all that said i have an nvidia shield um you know streaming media box thing hooked up to my tv downstairs and it has retro arch on it and i've got all the roms for you know all, for all of the games that i legally own as you can see on the shelves behind me um oh, yeah. Yeah. and uh yeah you know sitting down on on the sofa and, and just playing those with uh, some of these uh, 8-bit dough uh, wireless pads it's you know fantastic those things are great aren't they they are such a nice little pad they are i've, I've got the uh, i've got the uh, mega drive one here actually it's one i've been, oh, very been nice. using with my multi-system so um, but yeah, it's, you know, great way to experience and enjoy those games and a very sort of cheap way to get into the hobby as well. So certainly not against it. So Reese, thank you so much for joining us. Now, of course, we've, um, whenever I record with someone, I make sure they get their obligatory plugs within the uh, content of a podcast. But for those who haven't quite caught on done yet, do you want to tell people where we can find your content, where we can find you on the socials, uh, where we can store? No. Um, 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, go, go. <laughs> no, no, that was that was meant to be a subtle sort of um, yeah, like um, lead-off. You know the uh, show and tell that I did with uh, with Neil right at the end, right? So oh, yes. say goodbye, and I just sit there in silence, like yeah, one of those <laughs> awkward moments. Oh yes, that was. Oh, of course, we we forgot to mention something. Just go and check out Neil's um, Reese's show and tell with Neil because you get to see the video music system from Atari, which is one of the most 70s things I have ever seen. I won't spoil anything, but go and check Under it there. out. It's one of my favourite things, but uh, yeah. Yeah, good to have an opportunity to kind of show that off. Yes, anyway, we were doing the uh, we were doing the, the plug bit. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, so um, uh, yeah, uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter. Um, apparently I'm on Facebook as well, although that's kind of automated and I don't interact with it, which is definitely by far the best way to deal with Facebook. Um, Absolutely. So under the same name, Control.Reese, that's uh, R-E-E-S. Um, yeah, YouTube channel. Go like and subscribe. Ring that bell. Smash the like button. All that stuff. I like it. You've got that pattern down, baby. So that's, that's, I'm liking it. Yeah, it's good. I, I think we just all copy pe- copy pasta right now. Oh, yes. um, anyway, thank you so much. So, speaking of liking and subscribe, do subscribe to the podcast. We're in all the major podcast directories, all the good ones and all the really bad ones too. Wasn't that what was that? Something that was. I can't remember what it was. It was something like, we're in all the major news agents, all the good news agents, and all the really bad ones, too. Oh, and who was that? That was from something, that was something from our childhood. Um, it was. After, I think, after, it was probably one of the gaming shows. Anyway, um, drop us an email at podcast at crosswise.net with any questions or feedback. Um, hopefully my audio sounds okay this time. I'm using a new microphone, and I think it sounds great, but it might turn out to be rubbish, and if that's the case, I'll, I'll fix it, honestly. Um, do head over to crosswise.net where you'll find the links for this episode with all the little links to Reese's videos and links to Wikipedia pages about the Atari and everything like that, all the things you might want to do a bit of reading from. And of course, crosswise.net is where the blog's housed. And don't forget crosswise.net forward slash YouTube where you can see all our latest YouTube videos. Um, I've just recently posted our time capsule teardown and upgrading of um, Apple Airport Extreme... No... Apple Airport time capsule, the one that Reese can see there. And that's had a new hard drive put in it. That, that's it. There you that's go. the one. Um, that's the one. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening and um, we'll see you next time. Yes. Bye. Bye.